0: Hello, I'm Matt, and this is ghost The The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 6, Devil's Gate. At Devil's Gate Gorge near Pasadena, California, there sits a large rock outcrop that many believe is shaped like Satan's head, hence the name of the location. Personally, I think it looks more like Batman than Satan, but nobody asked me. Factual information about the location's history has largely been buried in the public consciousness by tall tales and folklore, and these have, in turn, influenced much of what people say and have written about this location in the tight circle of fact, uncertainty, myth, and nonsense that is human collective memory. As noted previously, the rock formation, at least from one angle, looks like either the devil or Batman's head. Legend holds that stories told by the local Tongva people say that the sound made by the river, as it moves through the gorge, is similar to laughter and was, in fact, the laughter of the culture hero, Coyote. Some tellings hold that the Tongva felt that the location was supernaturally powerful and to be avoided, with others claiming that it was to be shunned by the living because it was the gateway to the afterlife. I'm skeptical about claims made regarding what the Tongva believe, but I'll discuss that a bit in the commentary. In 1920, the gorge was dammed to create a reservoir and control flooding in the Los Angeles River system. However, the Devil's Head remained above water and continues to be visible to this day. Like most reservoirs, the complex consists of a dam, tunnels carved into rock to direct the water, and numerous appurtenant facilities. One of the tunnels is located near the Devil's Head rock itself and is enclosed behind a metal gate. The facilities themselves are pretty normal for a flood-controlled dam. So, why is it that this place inspires a belief in the supernatural? Part of that gets down to the history of the area, which is, by turns, dark and upsetting, and, at times, just kind of weird. I've already mentioned how local lore connects this place with the Tongvo religion, so let's talk more about modern history. Disturbingly, in the 1950s, a series of children went missing in the area, including 13-year-old Donald Lee Baker and 11-year-old Brenda Howell in 1956. 8-year-old Tommy Bowman in 1957, and 6-year-old Bruce Kremen in 1960. Bruce Kremen's disappearance is especially baffling, as the boy was attending a YMCA camp and left the counselors to walk 300 yards back to the camp lodging, only to vanish. While the 1956 disappearances were explained years later when serial killer Mac Ray Edwards was caught in 1970, the other disappearances remain unsolved. Whether they were victims of Edwards, just unconfessed, or due to some other cause is still unknown. Regardless, they have added to the grisly history of this area. The police collected other stories prior to these crimes, however, the most entertaining of which involve Alastair Crowley, yes, that Alistair Crowley, L. Ron Hubbard, yes, that L. Ron Hubbard, and their friend Jack Parsons. L. Ron Hubbard was, of course, the founder of the Church of Scientology. Crowley was the founder of a religion known as Thelema, which was part religion, part secret society, and part sex cult. Parsons was a co-founder of the facility that would become NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a literal rocket scientist, and an all-around really weird guy. Aleister Crowley never visited the area, but Jack Parsons followed Crowley's teachings and did have a lengthy correspondence with Crowley, who blessed Parson leading the local temple of Thelema. According to the story, Crowley, Hubbard, and Parsons were convinced that the Devil's Gate Gorge was one of the seven gateways to hell, and thus full of all manner of supernatural power. Some folks have claimed that the location of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory was intended to use power from the Devil's Gate, and that it is tied to the various occult movements that have become popular in Los Angeles and Hollywood during the 20th century. While these stories tend to break down into incoherence pretty quickly, they are fun to hear and tell. Among the stories are claims that Hubbard and Parsons took part in rituals at the Gorge with the intention of tapping into the Hellgate's energy, possibly to create what they called a moon child, a being that would embody a feminine divine force. Parsons and Hubbard did, in fact, engage in such rituals for this purpose in 1946, and at least some of them involved sex magic, though whether they did anything at Devil's Gorge is not reported anywhere that I could find. Some claim that Parsons' activities here opened a rupture into another space, allowing spiritual entities to wander between here and their own world freely. I found one source that claims that a gate at the entrance to a tunnel built into the rock near the dam is the entrance to one of the seven gates of hell spread across the earth. And, for future episodes, remember that seven gates to hell claim. It will come up again in other locations. One Adam Nodler, the founder of the Supernatural Investigation Unit in Pasadena, has described a Pasadena Triangle consisting of the Colorado Street Bridge, also known as Suicide Bridge, the Enchanted Forest slash Cobb Estate, and the Devil's Gate. In an article for the California State University Northridge student newspaper, Nodler is quoted as saying that he believes that the Devil's Gate powers the weird happenings attributed to the other two locations. Given this colorful history, it is no surprise that stories for the location include the disappointingly mundane yet typical accounts of orbs and photos and phantom voices. However, there are a few interesting things said to happen at the tunnel near the Devil's Head Rock. In one case, someone reported hearing singing coming from within the tunnel, and on investigating more closely, they saw red eyes peering from near the rear of the tunnel. The folks over at the Paranormal Files YouTube channel visited the tunnel in a video in which they overreact to, um, well, not much of anything really. But they do claim that an unseen spirit is moving objects within the tunnel, where they also found evidence of people apparently having attempted a folk magic curse. Los Angeles based paranormal investigator Victor Huesca has also recorded what sounds like an inhuman growl and a couple of faint noises that sounded like distant screams a hiss and also a strange low-pitched voice within the tunnel. He also found flowers strewn about and suggested that this was evidence of some sort of a magical ritual. Still, best to remember that some of these things are not quite as eerie as they seem. While the paranormal files did find evidence of what does genuinely look like folk magic, I have to say that I've seen nearly identical packages of candles and herbs near every accessible but more or less hidden place that I've done field work. This is really pretty common. Similarly, the flowers found by Huysca are as likely to simply be the remains of someone dropping flowers as anything more elaborate. On a similar token, back in 2015, the folks at the Los Angeles beat provided a short description of the area in which they refer to mysterious wood structures away from the dam as evidence of something odd occurring in the surrounding area. Looking at the photos, to me, as someone who deals quite a lot with electric utility systems, these mysterious structures look exactly like transmission line structures. So, you know, grain of salt and all. That said, I will link a few videos in the show notes, but I really only recommend Hoiskas. While I'm skeptical of what he claims to find, it's short, entertaining, and creepy. It's what a good ghost story should be. Commentary. Naturally, the ghost hunters who visit this area are looking for the typical ghostly manifestations of our time orbs, cold spots, and the like. This is disappointing given the allegedly deep supernatural meaning of this place. There are some really creepy stories about this area. The thing in the tunnel, in particular, really grabs my attention. But when I researched this location, I found that most of the folks who went looking for anything came back with only vague and not very interesting stories to tell. I appreciate their honesty but I would love for someone to have seen something a little more exciting at this place, given its history and the strange lore attached to it. I have to admit that, in reading a write-up on the LA Ghost Portal website, I was put off by their description of trying to reach the spirits of missing and dead children. That just seemed really tasteless to me. Although the children died several decades ago, their siblings and other relatives are probably still alive. And this just seems like having a lark with someone else's horror and tragedy. I find it very off-putting. On the other hand, I included them in my description here, so perhaps I am guilty of the same tastelessness, though I hope to a lesser degree. The claims of supernatural activity are generally pretty vague, and most of them don't really stand out. This is disappointing, considering this location's prominence in the Los Angeles area's ghost lore. The orb photographs are, quite frankly, pretty unexcited, and are easily explainable by known processes by which cameras take pictures. The disembodied voices are much more interesting, but their descriptions are typically vague. That said, the description of the singing red-eyed entity in the tunnel, well, that's pretty creepy to me, and it did grab my attention. Unfortunately, there seems to be little information other than the one description that appears to have been copy and pasted across multiple websites. Oh well, better a taste of something interesting than nothing at all. One of the more interesting elements of the story, from a general folkloric and historic standpoint, though, is the claim that this location was of supernatural importance to the Tongva people. Whether or not this is true is a bit hard to sort out. While it's tempting to take the local folklore at face value, there's a long history of places generally regarded as mysterious or spooky being incorrectly claimed as important to Native American religions. And there's some reasons for that that I'll get into shortly. I've seen enough cases where hauntings or other strangeness were mistakenly attributed to Native American places of religious importance, cemeteries, and so on, that I tend to be pretty wary when I come across those accounts. As claims of association between hauntings and places of Native American importance are common throughout North America, I decided to dig into this a little further, and I thought this might be a good place to describe how I research this sort of claim. I start with a couple of standard ethnographic resources. For this area, being in California, I use Volume 8 of the Handbook of North American Indians, published in 1978, and the 1976 reprint of Alfred Kroeber's 1925 book, Handbook of the Indians of California. Quick side note, if you're a science fiction fan and you like Ursula K. Le Guin, Alfred Kroeber was her dad. These books are not definitive. The errors in them have been demonstrated by the decades of ethnographic works since they were initially published, but they are a very good starting point when you're looking for information on native peoples of California. The Tongva, who are often referred to as the Gabrielino or Ferdinando due to the names of the two missions into which many of the Tongva people were placed, occupied much of modern Los Angeles County, as well as the Southern Channel Islands. The Tongva were highly sophisticated hunter-gatherers, and there's evidence of a three-tiered class system, elites, middle class, and than everybody else, as well as possible private ownership of land, a rarity among hunter-gatherers. Alfred Kroeber in his writings compared them to the Chumash of the Santa Barbara Channel area, which indicates a high degree of sophistication as the Chumash are often studied regarding subjects such as the origins of money and the origins of permanent class hierarchies. The Tongva are also noted for having a cult that used the hallucinogenic properties of the Datura plant in their ceremonies, Please note here, I use the term cult in an ethnographic sense to mean a religious group with set rituals and practices, not in the pejorative sense that it is usually used in common speech. Cults like this are common throughout the world, and most of our major religions began this way. In fact, if you're Catholic, you may even be aware of the term cult of the saints, which refers to prayers to saints. The Deterra cult is a common and often secret cult type found through much of contact period California. Unfortunately, Kroeber and later ethnographer Lowell Bean and Charles Smith reported that there was much loss during the mission period, and that it was almost impossible to gain an accurate assessment of the Tongva religion, or even many aspects of adult life amongst the Tongva. Bean and Smith cite Zephyrin Engelhart, a Catholic priest and clerical historian of the Franciscan order, as stating that the Gabrielino tended to secrecy, and while Engelhart attributed this secrecy to dishonesty it's far more likely that it was a mix of fear of the priests and of other Europeans, actual secrecy regarding rituals and stories, which is common amongst most cultures in the world, and a reluctance to speak with outsiders on important or private matters. While the references produced up through the 1970s routinely cite a lack of information on Tongva culture, cosmology, and religion, they all agree that other better-documented peoples nearby likely derived many of their religious and cult traditions from the Tongva. That allows us to make some inferences about the Tongva religion. They likely had a god, or depending on how you look at it, a culture hero known as Chingichinish, also sometimes called kwa though these names may also have indicated different spirits or heroes who played roles in creation, reconstructing a lost religion as a tricky matter. And then a host of ancestral animals, important among them being crow. Crow, incidentally, plays a very large part in a lot of Southern Californian native religions. But without more specific information on the Tongva themselves, the two main standard references for California ethnography are silent on the subject of the Devil's Gate Reservoir. Krober does make a brief reference to a tale of coyote racing against the water and becoming tired and ashamed of his failure, and while that sounds intriguing for a reservoir built on a stream and one where it's said that the sound of the water is coyote's laugh, Krober doesn't really associate it with any particular location in his text, so whether it would have been tied to this area by the native peoples That's open to question. Still, information not being present in those references doesn't mean that the location lacked importance. While these books contain a good deal of valuable information on Native California lifeways and religion, they are also astoundingly incomplete. I have learned through working professionally with both Native Americans and ethnographers that the early ethnographers whose work is summarized in these volumes often didn't have the full confidence or cooperation of some of the storytellers. Sometimes the informants were recalling old stories that had been passed down from pre-mission times, and the people with more complete memories of the stories were either unwilling to talk or unavailable. In addition, it's not uncommon for stories of places of cosmological or magical significance to not be widely shared, especially with outsiders, and so the ethnographers wouldn't hear about them even if there was an active tradition alive. Typically, at this point, I would hit the anthropology collection at the local college and university libraries and look through the various monographs and journal articles. But, unfortunately, I'm writing this episode during the COVID-19 pandemic and, therefore, not able to go to those libraries and look through their collections. So I took to the internet looking for additional information, and I had to put a lot of work into avoiding misinformation and nonsense. There really is a lot of nonsense online regarding Native California religion and most of that nonsense is frankly written by white people. It appears that this location was in the territory of the Hahamogna band or triblet, of the Tongva, and indeed, the nearby Hahamogna Native Plant Nursery bears an anglicized version of their name. Also worth noting, the Los Angeles County Department of Public Works initiated a sediment removal and management program and issued its final environmental impact report. Environmental impact reports, if written correctly, contain information on the archaeology and ethnography of a project location. A lot of the information is confidential, so you can't get a full accounting of anything in these reports, but they do give you general information that can be of great value. The company that produced this report requested information on sacred lands from the California Native American Heritage Commission, and the commission responded that no sacred sites were known in the area, which, again, doesn't mean that there are none, but rather that none have been reported to the commission, which is, I have found, fairly common. Consultation by the report authors with Tongva elders and tribal governments did indicate that the area is culturally significant, though the reason for that significance was not clear from the EIR, and its ethnography section did not indicate any specific importance to the area outside of the potential for settlements to have been near the creek, and that's pretty common regardless of whether the location is considered to be particularly powerful or important. So, lacking the ability to gather further information, I can neither confirm nor deny that the Tongva peoples considered this area particularly sacred or powerful, which, I know, is a letdown after I took you through that short odyssey of research. But while I think it's useful to know that, while it's easy to simply state that a place was considered mystically powerful by local peoples, it's much harder to actually demonstrate that through research. Now, I can say that Arroyo Seco, which is the creek that was dammed to create the reservoir, would have been a reliable source of water, at least seasonally, in a relatively arid place, which means that it likely attracted people who probably lived near it at least part of the time. The Tongva do appear to have had a deterrent much like other peoples of southern and central California, and like many of these cults, it is likely that the rituals were carried out in places and at times where only the initiated could attend. And if the post-mission views of these cults were altered in a manner similar to what happened with other Native Californians, then it is likely that the locations known to be important to the members of the cult would be viewed as powerful and possibly taboo to their descendants. But again, this is not something that can be confirmed at this time. It's simply a possibility and a fairly tantalizing idea that I just don't have any evidence to back up. Perhaps, when we are out of pandemic mode, I can once again begin visiting research libraries and see if anyone has recorded anything. But for now, I got nothing. Now, all of that said, associating this location with the Tongva religious beliefs does something for the non-Native population that bears consideration. There's a long tradition in colonial and post-colonial contexts of treating the Native peoples of an area as mysterious and mystical. For example, consider how Europeans and North Americans typically associate India not with the various artistic, scientific, industrial, and cultural achievements of the people of India, but instead with the ideas of mysticism and magic, and with the notion that understanding its mysteries will somehow make the European or American deep and spiritual. This creates a shallow and commodified understanding of India and of Indian religions and cultures. Although it's not universal, and it varies from location to location, Similar things occurred in many places that were subject to colonization by Europeans during the early modern period. Reading materials written by Spanish explorers and colonists, and later by Anglo-American settlers, it is pretty clear that while the general view towards Native Americans was one of condescension with various degrees of hostility, there was often a sense of wonder, romanticism, and also fear. A notion that these people perceived as being so close to nature might hold secrets that would be potentially dangerous. Over the course of the 20th century, the Romanticism was ramped up and the fear began to fade away. Indeed, early Boy Scout materials are fairly drenched in this Romanticism, and this led to a curiosity with Native California religion, but also an unwillingness and sometimes inability to grasp it on its own terms on the part of the largely white, non-Native population. Eventually, it led to the notion that native Californians, like so many other minority groups, were somehow magical and not quite of this world, and from there it became common to associate allegedly supernatural places and events with them. And this is the cultural context in which we find ourselves when we look at the claims that this place was known to be mystically powerful and dangerous by the Tongva. While I cannot tell whether this location has a specific religious or cosmological significance to the Tongva peoples, I do know that linking the location to the Tongva provides a sense of unearned menace and gravity, and makes the stories told about events here seem more authentic. It's not as outright racist as the built-on-an-Indian burial-ground trope, but it's close, and I find it troublesome. I like how the author Colin Dickey summarizes the tendency of non-Native Americans to associate hauntings with dubious claims of connection to Native Americans. Quote, There's nowhere in this nation that wasn't already inhabited before Europeans arrived, and there's no town, no house, that doesn't sit atop someone else's former home. More often than not, we've chosen to deal with this fact through the language of ghosts. End quote. The too-long, don't-read version... Native Americans are human like you and me. They have cultures and tradition that extend back hundreds if not thousands of years. Those should be respected, and they're not here just to create scary stories for the rest of us. However, Backing up farther and looking at this story from a bit of a higher elevation, Something that I actually very much like about tales surrounding Devil's Gate is the way that they weave numerous different strands present in other ghost stories together, though it does so largely through the person of Jack Parsons and, to a degree, L. Ron Hubbard. Appeal to Los Angeles hedonism? Check. Reference to a cult? Check. And bonus, both Crowley's Temple, of which Parsons was a member, and L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology organization make an appearance. Reference to dark rituals? Check. Site of very real and verifiable tragedy? Check. Reference to Native American sacred sites? Check. Turning the mundane? In this case, a gate blocking a tunnel into something super creepy? Check. Wonderfully, it is the most outlandish element of this story that is also the one that's most likely to be true. While I can't confirm that Parsons and Hubbard ever engaged in rituals at the Devil's Gate, it would not have been any weirder than things that these two were confirmed to have gotten up to around that point in time at other locations around Los Angeles County. They were part of groups that practiced orgies and sex magic. Parsons did appear to legitimately believe that he could summon beings from another world, and aliens are a foundation of Hubbard's Scientology. Crowley, Hubbard, and Parsons all documented their beliefs pretty thoroughly. Interestingly, in the second season of the Amazon Prime show Lore, there's an episode that's focused on Jack Parsons, and it is full of cults, orgies, and sex magic. While most episodes of Lore tend to play up and exaggerate the historic record, sometimes outright fabricating things for dramatic effect, this episode, complete with all the elements described, somehow managed to make Jack Parsons seem less weird than he really was, and they left L. Ron Hubbard out completely, possibly because they were afraid of being sued by the Church of Scientology. Sadly, we'll probably never know if Hubbard and Parsons actually ever did anything at Devil's Gate. Regardless, this is a haunted location open to the public, and it may be worth a visit. Entertainingly to me, I found comments discussing the need for proper safety precautions and equipment for encountering spirits said to haunt this place, and that makes me wonder what the OSHA requirements for protective equipment are a mojo hand? A Grigory bag? Anyway, If you happen to be in the Los Angeles area and are looking for something to do with the day, it's worth checking out. The area is beautiful, and maybe you'll hear a song coming from behind a locked gate. Thank you for joining me. If you have heard a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's g-h-o-s-t-h-r-o-p-o-l-o-g-y at gmail.com. Also, please visit the Ghost blog for transcripts, show notes, and more information at kmmamedia.com. That's kmmamedia.com. Until next time, have a wonderfully spooky night. Spooky! <laughs>